everyone and welcome back. On this episode, I had a really cool opportunity to speak with Steve Kell. Steve is an independent marketing consultant as well as a farmer and Steve has worked in the grain business for about 30 years now. He has all kinds of experience and I asked him today to share a bit of a high level overview of grain logistics in the province. Um, And so he gave us a really good picture of just how fortunate we are in Ontario with access to different markets. And it wouldn't be an interview with Steve without a few key pieces of marketing advice thrown in there. So I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you again very much for joining me to have a brief talk about you yourself, your introduction into the agriculture industry, how you grew throughout your career uh, to become a bit of a grain marketing guru, if you will. (laughs) And I'm super excited to have you here today just to talk a little bit about your story and then give us some insight into grain marketing logistics in the province of Ontario. So thank you very much. Yeah, looking forward to it. Perfect. So why don't we start off? Let's go way back. Why don't you tell me how you got started in the industry? Well, I grew up on a farm, so you're kind of immersed in it from a really young age. When I was finishing up at Guelph, I got offered a job at UCO um, selling feed, actually. Okay. In a narrow miss, I was I was hired to sell for Wingham, Auburn, and Belgrave. No kidding. Yeah. And then in between when they offered me the job and when I was supposed to start, uh, they had a vacancy in Guelph, Milton, Erin. And since I was a student at Guelph and I was living in Guelph and my girlfriend lived in Guelph, I was like, oh, I'll take the Guelph job. So I never actually, uh, I could have been in Huron County right from day one, but didn't happen. <laughs> um, Fair enough. So I, I sold feed for, uh, for a year or two and then i got into the grain elevator i moved back home got in with simcoe district co-op and got into the grain elevator doing a little bit of grain marketing and did that for a couple of years and then i went into the feed mill in barry and i looked after uh ingredient purchasing uh for the feed mill which had more to do with grain marketing and still did some sales and then i went back to the grain elevator after that so uh, and I worked for the co-op for about nine years before I went to P&H. That's fantastic. What? So a good way to get your feet wet in the industry for sure. Yeah, I've shoveled a lot of stuff. I've got practice. <laughs> it's important to have done that um, because you have, you know, like when you want to relate to people at different places in the food chain, to have had some experience in operations is pretty useful. Definitely. that boots on the ground experience goes a long way with farmers as well as other industry members for sure. Absolutely. So what intrigued you? Um, Were you from a livestock farm initially? Is that how you first thought that you wanted to potentially dabble in the feed industry or what drew you to that initially? Um, Well, actually my dad and my grandfather were both beef cattle and hog farmers. Okay. So I did, I did grow up in that. It was, um, so that was a big part of it. I knew going to school that I wanted to work in agriculture. Um, my degree is actually in, in geography. It's in land use planning. 
Um, but I got summer jobs when I was in university working for the Ministry of Agriculture. And so you had this look at at the land use business and also at the Ministry of Agriculture, I got to work with farmers and I made up my mind that I was a lot happier working with farmers. So of course, selling feed, you drive around and talk to farmers. It seemed like a great way to get a great job. So <laughs> Definitely, definitely. And then what drew you to the grain marketing? So what was it that you really liked about, you know, purchasing feed ingredients or the marketing of grain? What drew you to that side of the industry? The market is a really interesting thing because it's an ever-changing, uh, the market tries to stay in balance, right, between differences in supply and differences in demand and fluctuations in a whole series of things. The market's always trying to balance itself. And so there's a game in watching what's going on and then trying to anticipate how it's going to unfold. And you can get hooked on, it's almost an addiction, right? In, in trying to watch it unfold and see if you can guess it right. Um, yeah, I would, maybe addiction is the right word for it. I've been at it for 29 years, so. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. 30 and years, it, right? You just, yeah. just trying to watch it unfold, trying to anticipate what's gonna happen next. The other interesting thing about the grain business is there's fewer limitations to scale, right? Um, in feed, there's you can only you can only do so much, right? In terms of volume, there's always, certainly in the mill that I worked at, there was limits on how much product we could push out. And in the grain business, when it's just trading, all you really have to be do, able to do is find a buyer and find a seller and write contracts. So there's no limit to what you can take on. That's a really good point. And I think it's true for the agronomy business as well. You know, there's only so many acres that I can physically service in a day. Whereas, like you said, it's much easier to source additional grain because a lot of it is picking up the phone, right? And making and having those conversations with people. What about, because it's interesting because some people I find they absolutely love grain and they love that game that you're speaking to. Whereas other people, um, you know, maybe they, they shy away from that a little bit because it's not quite as black and white as some other sectors of the business. So what would you say it is about your personality that has made you a great fit for that type of a role? I think all of the really good people in the grain business are a wee bit ADHD, <laughs> right? Because it changes constantly, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you're bored with something in 90 seconds, you know, it's a good business because it's, it's constantly changing. Um, things like I would like agronomy evolves, right? The technology gets better. The genetics get better. The, the tools available uh, for growing crops get better, but it is, it, the change isn't nearly as quick. No, I think that's a good point. It's a, it's more of a slower evolution than it is day-to-day changes and month-to-month changes. Absolutely. So being very adaptable, I guess, would be a good trait to have in that role. Yeah, it's, you've got to like the excitement, right? That it's just constantly changing and whether or not... And of course, the, the person who can adapt the fastest makes the best trades or makes the best deals. And so... Absolutely. So thinking back on your 29 years in the business, 
Are there any moments that come to mind of when the market had a huge swing or was very volatile? Are there any instances that you can think of that you know you may have been able to help the company or help the farmers that you were working for at the time to manage that volatility? I hate to sound old, but 1992, which was the summer that we forgot to get any heat units and <laughs> the corn crop was a mess in certainly in northern Ontario. Uh, that was a really interesting learning experience. Um, that was, I was brand new in the business. We didn't know how to dry 36 pound corn that was 40% moisture. You know, it was really interesting. The feed industry didn't know how to use it. There wasn't any sort of biofuel. I guess Tiverton was open then, but nothing else. So it was a really interesting situation to try and figure out what to do with this crop, how to use it, how to fit it into the marketplace. And interestingly enough, by the spring of 93, like some of that corn stayed out all winter. And by the spring of 93, we knew exactly what to do with it, right? So it was just, just a situation where the whole industry had to take stock of the situation. We all had to kind of experiment with it, figure out what to do with it, move on. That was from a from a how to market a crop point of view, that was probably one of the biggest learning uh, experiences. And then there have been things like 2008, where we had what started off as a drought in Australia turned into a big market spike. 2012, where we had a drought in Central North America turned out to be a really interesting experience. So, um, and then, you know, learning how we handle those things, right? We're going to see something very similar to that happen in the next month or two as South America deals with some dry conditions, right? You know, are we, do we learn what happens? You know, like when you have a 2012 type event, how do you use that to take advantage of your 2013, 2014 marketing, right? And if we're having another one of those right now, what does that mean, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in those years then? I guess one probably is, you know, not to panic, obviously, when we get into a situation where we don't know what to do with the crop, because if you could find a home for that corn in 1992, you could probably find a home for anything. But what are some other things yeah. that you've learned from those tough yeah. years? We did the same thing in, in 2018, right? When there was a lot of high vomitoxin corn in Ontario. Definitely. And, and the market kind of calmed down and maybe because there was still a bunch of people who remembered 92 around, but it all disappeared, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It all moved. So one of the things I've learned is when we have sort of um, quality issues, everybody just needs to calm down, right? Just relax. The market's pretty smart. It's pretty adaptable. Um, we have, we're very fortunate in the Great Lakes Basin to have both a nice combination of end users and export opportunities all in the same place. So you can you can rejig the logistics and get different find markets for virtually anything that exists. That's a really good point that you bring up just how fortunate we are and what a unique area that we are in here in Ontario. So if you could, maybe if we go crop by crop, just Give us an overview of, say, what does it look like for corn? You know, okay, corn's coming off at harvest. 
folks are either storing that in their bin or it's going to a country elevator, but then what? Then where is it going? What are the different avenues that we have for export? Uh, just give us an idea of what that looks like, Steve. So you can divide the corn crop in Ontario up into thirds, roughly. About a third of it gets used for feed. About a third of it gets used in, we'll call it industrial, like the ingredients of the world. And about a third of it gets used for ethanol. Um, and interestingly enough, if you look at the U.S. Uh, corn crop, it's about the same. The, the portion of corn that we export out of the Great Lakes um, is not that big. It's an important piece because it's how we move, how we move our, our surplus. But uh, that's basically how the corn crop uh, in this part of the world uh, goes to market. In terms of the soybean crop, we grow about 3 million acres of soybeans. So we produce about 4 million tons. We only crush about a million in Ontario. Um, and then there's about a million tons of food grade like IPs and that kind of product. So it all leaves the country unless you and I are having tofu for supper tonight. And I don't think that one of us is. Unlikely. That's, <laughs> that's all export material. And, uh, and then about another 2 million tons gets on boats and goes out as crusher soybeans. So if you think about our soybean crop, 30 of every 40 bushels of beans that we grow gets on a boat and leaves. So we are, and, and of course there's American soybeans from upstate New York coming into Hamilton and from Michigan and Ohio coming into Windsor. So we actually have U.S. beans coming in and, and filling in part of that million or so tons of, of crush capacity that's in Ontario. And so why does that happen, Steve? Is that just because we've got the ability to export it at a lower cost than what they do? We're just the closest market, right? If you, if you farm in western New York, um, Bungie Hamilton is not that far away. It's closer than, than an American crush plant. And of course, Bungie's an American company, so they don't have any hangups with buying American, right? Um, so it's a nice close market. Those beans should not flow into the export terminals in Hamilton, because if you're commingling country of origin, it'd get complicated, but they certainly would go, uh, into the, into the crushers, right? That's just friction, a distance. It's the most, most logical place for that to go. But I think, so as soybean growers, you know, we need to watch the world market. And so South America is the biggest producer in the world. They're our competitor. Uh, Asia is the biggest buyer in the world. And so where with corn, we can watch domestic ethanol and domestic feed with soybeans. We need to be watching South America and Asia uh, because those are really the engines which set our price. That's a very good point. And what about wheat? Because wheat follows corn very closely, but it's a little bit different for us because we can use so much of it here in Ontario. So what does that wheat market look like, Steve? So Ontario grows a little over 2 million tons of wheat in a year, like just less than a million acres are actually last, like the 20 crop was over a million and the 21 crop is apt to be bigger unless we have winter kill problems. So we produce say 2.2, 2.4 million tons of wheat in Ontario. The the domestic flour mills, so the P&Hs and, and uh, Mondelez, uh, those kinds, they use about 500,000, 550,000 tons. So less than a quarter of the crop is actually milled in Ontario. 
Uh, the biggest flour milling market for Ontario wheat is Michigan and Ohio. It's American flour mills. Um, and then as you move east across Ontario, I joke with guys that all of the wheat grown east of the 400 goes to Quebec for feed, <laughs> which isn't entirely correct, but it's close. A good um, percentage of it then. Yeah, like we'll feed close to a million tons of the Ontario wheat crop. And that's why the relationship between the price of soft red wheat and corn in the cash market is as close as they are because they're essentially interchangeable. Now, wheat helps with pellet quality. Um, if you're worried about the color of fat on hogs or the color of yolk on eggs, they, there is sort of formulation requirements for, for the amount of wheat and the amount of corn in, in certain rations. And corn is 62% starch and wheat is 70. So wheat's worth a little bit more, but the two of them track very close together. So you watch, wheat has big carries in it. Most guys have learned selling wheat ahead works out. Um, right now, the corn complex is so strong, it's holding wheat up, which is good news. I mean, I'm a farmer. Anything that makes prices higher suits me great. <laughs> Absolutely. But we just need to understand what's holding it up, right? Uh, so that if we see something start to shake in that corn market, we know we have two crops to market, not just one, right? That's a very good point, for sure. So if that's what, you know, the typical logistic structure looks like within the province. So let's use a scenario like a couple years ago, like you mentioned, when we got into a situation where we had high vomitoxin in the corn. And so less of it would have been going for feed likely within the province. And I know a lot of that got on a boat and went elsewhere. So talk about how those game time decisions get made and maybe what some of the relationships are like with other countries, um, you know, when we get into a bind and we have to find another home for that grain. So if you're a uh, merchandising grain, if you're the, if you're selling it, um, one of the things is that you need to have customers and relationships with customers at the very least who buy all different qualities of stuff. Right. Um, so because Ultimately, nature decides what quality of crop the farmer is going to deliver, and then you're going to be expected to be able to move whatever it is that arrives. Um, and For sure. So Ontario is pretty fortunate when we had that high vomitoxin corn year that we can load boats. you got to give the whole uh, export trade, so the companies that load ships, a lot of credit for kind of surveying the world market and, you know, finding the guys who would buy max eight ppm boats or max five ppm boats right and finding buyers that would take the product that we had to move out of the province of ontario and there was also just an epic blending operation going on where um for instance kind of southern huron county like the epicenter of the high vomitoxin corn was lucan that was i blame the whole thing on peter johnson just <laughs> because he lives there, but that was really the worst of it. And so the object of the exercise, for instance, you would schedule so many trucks out of, you know, Lindsay Peterborough to be going to Hamilton with low vom corn at the same time you have high vom corn from South Huron or Middlesex going so that you can blend as you're loading the ship to hit the spec that's gotta be on the boat, right? So, yeah. there's, so there's two things that happen. One is 
the overseas sales have to be made to customers who in their end use, maybe they're making ethanol in Europe, right? So they're, their concerns about vomitoxin aren't so high. So that's the customer you want. And then you've got to look at the product that your farm suppliers have to sell and source out of different geographical areas in order to, it's, it's a, it's a blending operation that takes place, you know, in, in increments of hundred thousand tons, right? Yes. And under a fairly short period of time, really, I can uh, I can't say that I would envy envy that job. That sounds stressful. <laughs> the people who did the truck logistics um, didn't maybe get the pat on the back they deserved. Definitely, because, I could see that. Right to source out of different geographies and have everything show up as required as the boats are coming in, and yeah. just run these constant mixing is not an easy task. Absolutely. So to give folks an idea of what the port in Hamilton say would look like at harvest time or, you know, throughout the season while they're loading boats, what does that look like? Like if you can give us an idea of say, you know, the number of tons that are showing up in trucks by the day and the amount that's getting loaded onto boats, can you give us a picture of that? Yeah. If you look at um, Statistics Canada released some numbers about a week ago, said that in Ontario exported 811,000 tons of soybeans in October and 56,000 tons of corn in October. Wow. So that's, let's say for fun, 850,000 tons of grain loaded out in October of 2020. At If you were 25,000 tons per boat, that's 35 ships left Ontario in a month. Wow. And so... It takes like every port to do that, right? And then that's part of the advantage of farming in Southern Ontario is we're surrounded by water. And so you might be near Goderich, you might be near uh, Sarnia, the three terminals in Hamilton. Um, you know, there's a new one being built in Oshawa. There's, it, it takes all of them, right? To load a boat a day, you know, that would mean Hamilton for sure is where the majority of the the vessel capacity lives but so you're about 800 tractor trailers to a boat um so if if the port in hamilton is loading if each of those three terminals loads a boat a day or yeah a boat a day that means a third of a boat in each one of them each day that's incredible to fathom, like 800 tractor trailer loads per boat. I mean, you know that they're absolutely massive, but that, yeah, that is incredible to think of the scale of that. So, and, and how fortunate are we that we have those capabilities here? I know that you have had the opportunity to, um, you know, work out West a little bit and hear what's going on in the grain industry out there. What are the grain logistics look like in Western Canada? where there's so much more land, they don't have the same access to waterways for export. How do logistics look out there? So in the center of the continent, it's a hundred percent railroad dependent. And so like grain elevators function differently in, in the prairies, right? Um, a, basically farmers store the grain at home and then they deliver it to the elevator, which then loads a train, right? So I've often told people in Western Canada that an Eastern grain elevator is a hotel 
and a <laughs> western grain elevator is a bus station right that, that's a good analogy you just you just take the crop to the bus station to put it on a bus right that it, it doesn't stay there nobody combines and delivers off the field to the elevator is not how it works right and they think we're nuts this you know combining wet corn and dragging it to the elevator to get it dried and stored is is just outside of how it works the the grain elevator business you know so they're a hundred percent dependent on the railroad cn and cp to get trains timely delivery um and if there's problems with getting car spots or in extremely cold weather, the railroad slows down, or we get into some stuff like we did last fall with blockades on the tracks, that kind of thing. It's just, it slows the flow of grain, which then if the grain isn't flowing to the ports, the cash isn't flowing back to the farmer either, right? Here, we, uh, the fact that we can go from the field to a boat uh, is, it's such an advantage and I, I wonder if Ontario farmers even appreciate how fortunate they really are. How do you find that producers in Western Canada market their grain differently than in Ontario? Because obviously it looks different for them at harvest, don't have quite the same storage capacity. So how does that affect their marketing plans? It, there's a there's a big um, adjustment. You know, Western Canada relied on the wheat board for years and years, so people didn't, especially with wheat, didn't actually do the marketing. You just delivered it when you were allowed to, and then got paid a price which disappointed you. Seemed to be kind of the uniform policy. But um, they they ship by by very narrow quality bands. And so the grain really has to be stored at home and sampled. So like an elevator might be loading 2CW135, right? So a, a grade two Canadian Western wheat that's 13.5 protein. You have a bit of a problem forward selling 13.5 until you know what you're gonna harvest, right? There'll be a premium for a 14.5, but if you ship 12.5 against a 13.5 contract, the discount will be like tearing your hair out, right? Right. And so the the crop they 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 sell in these very narrow quality bands. So you take it home, you put it in your bins, then you sample all your bins, figure out what you got, and then you go about marketing it. The commodities that we sell in Eastern Canada, like like a number two crusher soybean, is a pretty hard spec to miss. Like I could I could forward contract twenty twenty three soybeans right now with no real fear that I'm not going to be able to come up with a grade two soybean two years out, right? And so that, we have an advantage uh, in terms of growing things that are pretty simple, right? We don't even sell our, our, the majority of our wheat is soft wheat. And so it's not sold based on a really tight spec either. Nothing on protein, falling numbers a little bit, but it's a pretty, pretty low bar to clear. Some of those Western crops like Durham, you pretty much have to have it before you can sell it. That's so interesting. So we definitely have such a greater opportunity to take advantage of forward selling, which I know after this harvest in particular, growers may be a little bit hesitant to, but I think in most years it definitely pays to do. Yeah, it's funny. You know, we talk about selling the carry and then 
every once in a while we have a year like 2020 where if you had no marketing plan at all you would have done better but the last time we had a year like this was 2008 right and so every 12 years not having a plan works and those seem to be the ones that folks remember (laughs) weird as heck they can't remember the other 11 right i mean people don't play russian roulette and your odds are only one in six why the hell would you play no marketing plan where your odds are one in 12 right that's a very good point for sure how have you seen growers marketing plans change over your time in the industry or have they oh they they've definitely farmers are becoming smarter and smarter marketers all the time um my observation and this goes back to maybe when i was a kid i'm gonna how old I am, but there used to be, when you traveled around, there was farmers who were just bad farmers, right? There was, you know, you'd go past a place and there's weedy fields and, you know, it was half wheat and half milkweed and that kind of stuff. And over the years, all of those farmers who were bad agronomists have disappeared. If you look at average corn yield in Ontario in the last 25 years, it's gone nowhere but up, right? Same thing with wheat yields, it goes up. We've cleaned out all of the bad operators. And the people who are left now, sure, there's guys who get better and worse yields, but even the guys who have the worst yields are still really pretty good operators. You, you just don't have bad agronomists farming anymore. I think the next cut is going to be in terms of marketing, where if, if Let's say if you put in all your costs, and I'm winging it here a little bit, but to grow soft red wheat in Southern Ontario, by the time you have land costs, machinery and everything, and your cost is like 625 a bushel, right? Mm-hmm. So one guy sells his wheat for 650 a bushel and his neighbor sells wheat for 675 a bushel, right? And that the 25 cents doesn't sound like that much, but in terms of net margin, the one guy made 25 cents a bushel and the other guy made 50 cents a bushel, right? Which Absolutely. is the difference between two guys doing the same job and one of them makes $50,000 a year and the other one makes 100000 a year. And that, that 25 cents all of a sudden, you know, in terms of net take-home pay from the business is, is huge, right? Well, then as land comes up for sale and those kinds of things, the guys who are the better marketers have more financial capacity to expand. And the guys who are poorer marketers have less financial capacity if they have a couple of bad years or, you know, they get into a position where maybe they need to expand. Those are the ones we're going to lose. And I think the big evolution that we're going to see in it's probably already started, but I think it's going to come quick. Good marketers are going to do really well and bad marketers are going to move to town. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. As margins continue to shrink, farmers are going to have to continue to be smarter and smarter to stay in the game. And it is interesting how grain sometimes seems to be the last thing that we pay attention to, but it's it's how we get paid. And so maybe if you could share a couple of things that you have seen some of the most successful marketers, um, just how they make decisions, some of the traits that they have. One of the things that I think makes a big difference in terms of a marketing plan is people who have a realistic expectation of what they want. So 
let's say we go back to that wheat cost 625 a bushel to grow and I want to make uh, a 10% return on the money that I'm using. So that's 60 cents. So if I get up in that 685 range, 690 range on wheat, I'm a seller, right? That's, that's my number because I, I lock in a return. And the guys who know what they want are better able to make the sale than the guys who just want to sell the biggest number they could possibly sell, right? right? People who watch it go up and they think, you know, life is good and maybe they're at the curling rink and they hear people talking about a bigger number and, and then they don't make a decision while the market's going up. And it's impossible to make a decision while the market's going down, right? Everybody wants the last price they said no to. And so if you turn down 695, you won't sell 690 because it's going to go back and then it goes to 680 and then you want 690, right? You get, it's like catching a falling knife. They just won't do it. Um, <laughs> and that leads to all kinds of disasters. So, I mean, certainly if we sat people down and said, what price would you like to sell? And everybody's going to say, well, I want to sell the high of the market, but you have to establish what the high is. The guys who know what kind of return they need or maybe not need the kind of return that's a really decent quality of life return on their business are, are able to just step up and hit the trigger when when they get their number right and then you do it on kind of a divided scale most guys grow three crops so if you sell a quarter at a time so you sell your beans in three slices your corn in three slices your wheat in three slices you have basically one marketing decision to make every month right 12 marketing decisions a year and then kind of divvy it up and, and go like that. So you, as you hit your number on the allocated portion for that month, you knock it off. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. So really having a plan and then being able to execute when you need to. Yeah. yeah. Very good. It's, it's funny. I heard years ago, as Cal Wewell from FC Stone used to say, imagine you had a bin in your yard and a grain bin and it's completely empty, right? And you put $50,000 in cash in a brown paper bag and set it in the middle of the grain bin, right? Would you maybe open the bin door every few days and make sure your bag of cash was still there? <laughs> Probably. Right? There's all kinds of people who have this crop to market and they're just like, yeah, I don't know. My favorite is I don't need the money. I, I, I don't need the money. Well, even Bill Gates would know what to do if he had an opportunity, right? The I don't need it is not an excuse. You gotta, you gotta be able to manage that, right? Fair enough. No, that's a very good point. Speaking of grain bins there for a minute, I've seen a lot of bins go up in the last few years. It seems, you know, obviously as farms are getting larger and larger, they're becoming more self-reliant, having more storage of their own. What impact is that going to have on the industry? And what do you see, you know, the, the future of the grain logistics looking like maybe 10, 15 years down the road? One of the things that's really interesting is yields are going up and the number of acres that are being farmed is going up. So if we went back 15 or 20 years ago, the number one crop in Ontario was, was forages, hay and pasture, right? And so as that land moves, into field crops and yields go up we have more grain to handle and there's always been this kind of circular conversation about well farmers are building more storage but the reality is 
grain companies are building more storage too. And when we have good yields and big harvests, darn it all, we seem to fill it, right? Um, so we actually need more uh, storage in Ontario. We need to keep putting the stuff up because we keep producing more acres of bigger yields. Um, the other thing is, as our harvesting capacity gets faster, um, what we need in terms of a drying, especially with corn, if you think about harvesting uh, five ton per acre, like 200 and some bushel corn with a 12 row header at five and a half miles an hour, you can't go into a 300 bushel GT batch dryer, right? That's true. We gotta, so the infrastructure's gotta come in order to keep up to the speed that uh, that harvest is is coming, right? It just like, you know, if combines get bigger, grain buggies have got to get bigger, trucks have got to get, you need more of them or bigger, right? That's just, that's just a reality of, of the way we grow businesses. The key piece for farmers in Ontario is that the demand keeps up. So, you know, and I mentioned there, there's a new terminal being built in Oshawa, which doesn't affect Huron County farmers much, but the more export terminal capacity we get, the more outlet to the world market we get. So when we produce more crop, we can still move it, right? Um, they've raised the renewable fuel, uh, I think the ethanol blend requirement up to 15% now in Ontario. So we need more corn for ethanol. We have more corn going to, um, or more access to ship soybeans and corn out on boats, right? All these things are really important. Uh, and it goes, if we can flatten it out, so so that you know the the crop doesn't all you take away the harvest low right when when there's adequate storage whether it's on farms or in country elevators that nobody's in a position where they've just you know it's either dump this grain on the ground or sell it right that's the worst thing that can happen in a market if you merchandise storage you can do really well with it and, you know, I think that's something that perhaps we don't all recognize that having access to those markets does help to take away a bit of that pain at harvest. So we're very fortunate to have that. And that's a really good point to make. So you've seen a lot of the province and it's so neat to have that overview. And you've seen all kinds of different farming operations and one thing that I think is really interesting about you in particular is that you have a farming background as well, but not only do you farm, you know, in, uh, in South Central Ontario, but you also farm up into New Liskard in and into Manitoba as well. So tell me a bit about how you got started in those different areas. Well, there's the ADHD acting up again, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the challenge with farming right where I grew up is it's too near the city. And so, you know, you can rent land from developers. That's no big trick. But if you want to buy it, uh, it's absurdly expensive. And so um, my oldest brother actually moved to Manitoba 27 or 28 years ago and bought a farm out there. And so I in 2003, I bought 
some land that's a mile or two from my brother's place. And that was really, you know, the, the entry cost to get into that market was pretty cheap compared to what it was here. When you're buying farmland in places where the only people buying it are other farmers, it's priced based on the return it can earn, which is different than if you were trying to buy land on the edge of, say, London, Ontario, where the people you're competing against are figuring out how many houses they can put on per acre, right? Good point. So that, that's how I got into, into southern Manitoba. Um, and that's worked out pretty good. And then northern Ontario, I mean, I've been going up there since I was a university student, and I just am fascinated by it. It's uh, the problem with if you wanted to move to the prairies to farm, you actually have to learn different stuff, right? You have to learn to grow different crops in different ways and that and market them in different ways there. It's a quite a learning curve. Um, Northern Ontario is not radically different than, you know, where I am at home. We grow essentially the same crops, essentially the same way. It's just 455 kilometers further north. That's all. So slightly different varieties, but otherwise not much different. And again, it's priced where you don't have developers chasing the price of land up there. If anybody runs the prices, it's it's guys from the south going up. It's kind of funny. I have the same next door neighbor in Innisfil and in New Liskard. One of my funny. neighbors from down here did the same thing as me. Yeah. One Saturday morning, we were having a chat on the shoulder of the road, and I thought we both drove 500 kilometers so we could stand on the shoulder of the road and talk to each other. It's just we could have got together for a coffee in Bradford. It would have been easier. <laughs> But, <laughs> that's hilarious you know so it's that's that's northern ontario for you it's um you know there's still there's still land that can be opened up there which is different than than here where you know pavement seems to be way more popular than tile drainage so definitely and i guess you know that that adds to your point that you made earlier about the fact that there are more potentially uh, acres that can be potentially cultivated within the province. And sometimes I forget about Northern Ontario, you know, when I'm just looking at Southwestern Ontario. So that is a really good point to bring up too. Yeah, there's going to be some environmental regulation that makes it trickier in the North. Um, not sure we want to go down that rabbit hole, but... <laughs> Like the new clean fuel standard, you're not allowed to grow uh, crops for biofuels on land that's been cleared after 2008. So that's a problem for Northern Ontario, but but there is definitely land to be had. Yeah, absolutely. So no, and that's so great for you. I mean, you've set yourself up for success later on in your career and can have some fun with that now. And I'm sure it's been really great to see different parts of Canada as well and get to spread out your risk a little bit too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, um, so looking, you know, looking back on your career and over everything that we've discussed today, can you leave us with maybe one area of marketing that you think producers as a whole could do a better job of within the province that would help them to improve their farm profitability? I think the biggest challenge um, for for farmers is to is goal setting. You know, having 
spoken to guys for years and years about, well, you know, what do you want to, what do you want to get for your soybeans? Right. And, uh, well, and the answer is usually, well, the most, right. Yeah. Well, they okay. Right. Well, what would the most be? Right. You know, and then you can get into the practical woods of it. Right. So for instance, right now with a La Nina weather effect in South America, um, they're having a dry year. So it's possible that South America is going to have a very small crop. If that happens, prices could be 14, 1450, right? But the flip side is, and we all know this from farming, that if it's dry, field conditions are great. You have no problems getting the acres in, right? So certainly Brazil and Argentina have planted soybeans. And if you get rain in August in Ontario, you get soybeans, right? And so, you know, you got to look at this and say, if they don't get rain, you know, prices could be higher. If they do get rain, they couldn't still harvest one of the bigger, maybe not the biggest, but a pretty big crop, right? And so you start building your targets inside of that bracket, probably somewhere between, you know, 1250 and 14, depending on how the weather goes in the next 60 days in certain parts of Brazil and Argentina. And then as we see those weather forecasts come in, knowing what's reasonable based on on the situation and being able to pull the trigger as it happens, right? And you have, you have to have the plan. You know, it's like if this happens, then we're happy with 1350 if this happens we're happy with 13 dollars. if this happens we're getting off before it goes to 1250 right um and having those scenarios kind of laid out ahead of time and figured out based on a cause and effect model and then just being able to set them up and knock them down right definitely so having some goal setting done ahead of time making sure that you've educated yourself and then being able to pull the trigger. So, you know, it sounds like grain marketing is a lot more, a lot more black and white when you, when you put it that way, Steve. <laughs> I heard a guy say years ago that he was talking about marketing crop. He said, if you couldn't make your sales by, I think it was June the 1st, you were supposed to put your wife in charge of the marketing because she wouldn't be so emotional and she'd just make the decisions, right? <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. <laughs> yeah. Just say, listen, I think that was at Southwest Ag. I heard the guy say that. Listen, if you can't have sold your crop by June, just put your wife in charge of it. She's clearly a lot less emotional, right? Not but we do that attached. because, yeah, she, she just, what's it worth? Sell it, <laughs> right? We get, uh, you have to develop that. And I had the advantage of having been trading for a while. Like anytime you build a position, you know at what point you want to unload it, right? That's right. If I get into these, and if I can get this corn at 25 under and I can get out of it at five under or option price, I'm gone, right? That's it. I'm done. Um, and farmers need to develop a bit of that kind of trader mentality. You are essentially long the crop until you sell it. So at what, what's your, what's your cost and what can you realistically expect to get out of it? And then just develop the discipline to do it. Definitely. No, that's some fantastic advice for everybody that's listening, Steve. And so 
I know that you still do some writing in the Farmers Forum. I know that we're going to hear you speak at the Ontario Agricultural Conference next month, which is online, so everyone has got access to that. But if folks would like to contact you directly, Steve, with questions, where could they reach you at? Well, my cell phone works pretty good. Um, Perfect. (laughs) And that number is 705-834-8171. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for providing that. And really appreciate you taking the time today to give us a better understanding of what the grain picture looks like in the province and sharing with us some really tangible marketing advice. Definitely appreciate it. It was fun. (laughs) Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. For more episodes, please subscribe. You can find updates to new episodes on my Twitter at prosperityag0l.